0: Sean Weiss
1: Hope you're doing well on this Monday, May 8th, in 2023. Uh, Just remember, this week is Mother's Day on Sunday. And if you are anything like me, uh, where I tend to wait for the very last minute and then I am in a lot of trouble, uh, I actually got my UPS box delivered today with my wife's gift. But here's a question that I have. She is not my mother. So why do I have to buy her a Mother's Day gift? That's the thing that. Um,
2: because you're a good husband. husband. Sean, happy wife, happy life. That's it. That's all you need, my friend.
1: Yeah, I guess so. Well, anyways, so we have been out for now, what, three weeks. This is this is our third week. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of reasons why. Uh, Travel schedules for a number of us have uh, wreaked havoc on our ability to uh, get on here. Uh, I've been out of the office between uh, Orlando and Anaheim, California and uh, Maryland. And I know Scott's been over in London and Paul's been in Wisconsin and uh, Terry has been in Terry land and Stephanie's been in Stephanie land and Christine. I got the pleasure of seeing Christine out in uh Anaheim at the HCCA conference which was fantastic. Me too. And um I got a chance to meet a lot of folks who I had never met in person but they've uh watched the program, they've listened to the Compliance Guy podcast and uh they all had some really interesting fun and uh um good comments to make about the, uh, program and how much they enjoy it. And, uh, I've received a lot of, uh, messages over the last, uh, two weeks saying, uh, are you guys no longer doing this Monday roundtable?" Cause if you're not, I'm going to have to enter rehab because I'm, I'm having withdrawals. So here we are. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening to each and every single one of you, wherever you are around the country, around the world. And, to the all-star panel of subject matter experts um christine paul terry scott stephanie welcome back to the program hopefully we're back on track now and we don't have any more uh things that will delay us so um look we have an hour and we have some crazy stuff that we need to talk about um so let's just let's start first stephanie i want to come to you first um i want to talk about handling uh denials for diagnosis codes because that seems to be um a bit of a problem that a lot of folks are now running into uh and the insurance companies even outside of just the hcc audits that are being done insurance companies are really scrutinizing and cracking down on these diagnoses. so it's kind of Jump into that and have a conversation.
3: Yeah. So over time, you know, diagnosis has, from what I've seen in the industry, been kind of put to the side. We all know that it needs to be done accurately. When we had the switch from 9 to 10, you know, a lot of the payers were saying, you have to be specific. If you're not specific, we're going to deny. But we didn't really know what to expect. And I know for myself personally, and kind of what we've been talking about Um, within our team here internally, we haven't seen a large volume of denials up until I would say the past year and a half, maybe two years. The the volume seems to be growing. So one of the things that I had uh, happen about a week and a half ago or so with a client is that I was in a meeting with their uh, billing company and we were going through the different common trends they were seeing and all of a sudden they come across Five hundred and ninety nine claims denied directly related to the ICD ten coding. So There were no issues with CPT. It was just the entire denial was surrounding ICD-10. And I do wanna preface this by saying that it is a a client who staffs into a nursing home setting. So when we think about that, we are dealing with elderly patients. Um, One of the things that I noticed about the trends and denials that they were showing me is that they all could be directly linked to the risk adjustment process. So. When we think about risk adjustment, remember that for the Advantage plans and these commercial payers that have this, the money they're getting from the government is tied to the way that the diagnoses are coming on the claim. But then also think a step further, you know, you see in the news that some of the large payers are in trouble for risk adjustment, having to pay back, you know, sometimes over a million dollars in the errors of data that they're submitting. And it all trickles back to the provider. So one of the things my mind was kind of racing during this meeting. And one of the things that I just thought about was holy cow, the payers are now coming to this level where they're going to force the information that they need from the providers at the claim level, as opposed to the whole process we have, you know, with the different contractors that are doing their audits and validating the small volume that they do. So, It it was just very shocking to me. It really shouldn't be surprising. We should have that level of accuracy from from the payer level. But just to give you a couple ideas before we hand this over to others on the panel, the couple of combinations I saw, one of them was very common that we catch on audits where the hypertensive CKD was I-10 instead of I-12. They kicked the whole claim back for not using a combination code. And then one of the others I saw were surrounding the dementia diagnoses, and there was one, for example, I believe the symptom is R54 for debility, possibly, I think. Um, But if you look at the instructional guidelines, the ICD-10 notations tell you that you cannot use that with dementia. So it's not just a matter of that concept we're aware of is no sign and symptom with definitive. They somehow in their system have ICD-10 guidelines built in there.
1: Yeah, there's a lot going on and a lot to be said about, you know, the critical importance of diagnosis coding. Um, you know, over the years, there's been a lot of misperceptions you know, on things where people have said the more diagnoses you have, the higher level of service you can bill. But now, and, and, which obviously wasn't true, but now, you know, looking at, you know, from the perspective that you're talking about, Stephanie, you know, the, the, the emphasis on diagnosis coding and, and paying close attention when you're coding these services, when you are auditing these services, so, so important to make sure that, you know, your providers or your coders are getting these things right, um, Scott. Uh, any additional thoughts on that?
4: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, Stephanie's made some great points, and I feel like sometimes when I talk about the importance of accurate diagnosis coding, I'm almost like the boy who cried wolf when I'm in some of my audit meetings, where you know, it's I'm I'm saying it, and they're hearing it, and they're looking at me, and sometimes their facial expressions are even changing to suggest that they're listening. But then things aren't changing and so some of these payer changes are sort of logical we've talked about unspecified diagnosis codes for a long time we've talked about the importance of hcc accuracy and i'll tell you when stephanie i almost knew before she said it that she was going to mention hypertensive ckd because if i had a dollar for every time i see i10 along with a ckd diagnosis code on an encounter that i'm auditing I would be, like, my background would not be my home office. It would be some island in the Caribbean, right? It'd be, like, you know, just sun and endless beaches. But I see that all the time, and it becomes important. I'll tell you another uh, sort of related thing that I dealt with recently, where I had a provider who was coding depression and anxiety over and over again for all their encounters. And they were describing it in the note as a chronic condition. They were saying it was longstanding. They were being very unspecific in their history about recurrence, you know, specific level of severity. So as the auditor, my hands are a little bit tied based on the information that they're giving me, except then they're coding it as like F32.9, unspecified depression, unspecified anxiety. You know, and there's a whole conversation about, is this really anxiety with depression? Is it F41.8? And how does that affect the number of chronic conditions that are actually being managed? are these even being definitively established as chronic conditions? And we have a comment um, from Christine that I just want to address, like uh, so many providers coding themselves, uh, coding the diagnosis codes themselves, I assume is what she means, uh, and they're not being reviewed before leaving the door. And that is a substantive problem for ICD-10 coding in terms of, you know, look at the end of the day for a lot of the providers I work with, the bag of ICD-10 codes that they use regularly is probably not, thousands, uh, but the ones that they use, the conditions that they see often, it is worth the effort to ensure the claim line accuracy patient by patient, both for HCC purposes, for specificity of, specificity of diagnosis purposes, because what Stephanie is seeing in terms of these heightened denials, I would not expect that to go down. So if this is the warning shot, so to speak, um, then it should be taken seriously
1: yeah christine what are your thoughts
2: oh boy i'm gonna go total sean right now (laughs) so uh (laughs) you know i think that when we started to embrace risk adjustment uh there were no guidelines per se there was hey this is how we do we're gonna we're gonna run out there and diagnose all these chronic conditions they map over and the medicare advantage plans they encouraged this behavior and um, even providing guidance that said, hey, just from a problem list, throw it all on there. Well, knowing that that was wrong, what we've been seeing lately in the news is that we're trying to claw that back now. Oops, wait a minute. No, we should have a little bit more guidance. And But a lot of providers aren't getting that message. I keep hearing, but they told us to do this, meaning the Medicare Advantage plans. They told us to report all of these things and then compound that with what happened during the ICD nine to ICD-10 transition where I heard a lot of just give me the equivalent. So we're going to go unspecified to unspecified and many of them are still using those resource tools from eight years ago that really shouldn't be used anymore. We were told over and over again that there was going to come a time when that grace period was going to come to an end where we couldn't keep reporting unspecified unspecified and we continue to do so. So uh, the last part of that is that, like Stephanie was saying, I think what uh, Scott was saying, we don't have enough coders in the practice. We have now the electronic medical records that are recommending computer assist, natural language, even some AI, but they're not capturing all the coding rules, the coding guidelines that are necessary to report those codes correctly, code first, use an additional code. when does it map to a higher level of specificity? and we're missing that, and so I believe it comes from those three key points in in you know in time where Medicare Advantage plans were giving us wrong information. we had the gems mapping, and now we have the computer assist that we've become so dependent on, and it's a recipe for disaster
1: so you know I, I think Megan puts up a a great comment you know that the emr drop down diagnosis coding has language that's parallel to guidance but providers aren't educated on how to search the correct code choice which causes unspecified codes and correct codes and codes that aren't supported in the note like depression so i think that's another you know great point right there scott i think you had something else that you wanted to say
4: yeah and i I, christine had made some reference to it but you know some people are still using these gem mappings. And there were scenarios where ICD-9 went from, uh, went from an ICD-9 code that had no laterality to an ICD-10 code series that had laterality and the mapping would go to the unspecified code. So the provider would go along with the mapping or the practice would go along with the mapping, even though there was an accurate laterality code uh, within the documentation. And I still see way more often than I should circumstances where there's an unspecified, you know, injury side of the body and I'm sitting there thinking to myself well surely somebody in this somebody in this encounter knows whether it was the left or the right let me see if well, it i think that made ties into, into the note.
1: yeah i think that ties into what pam posted as well which is you know the gems mapping is part of the problem on the provider side they see specified descriptions but the diagnosis is unspecified
4: and i think it ties into you know, until we really started to lean into risk adjustment, I don't think there was a sense that diagnosis coding needed to be taken super duper seriously, right? It's like, you know, I-, I think for a long time, people were happy with like accurate, like ish. Um, And I think that's becoming a lot harder. And as we move towards more of this, you know, payment based on severity, acuity, whatever phrase you want to use, there aren't a lot of, different mechanisms to discern severity outside of diagnosis coding at the claim level.
1: Yeah. So Terry, you are very unusually quiet. I'm just listening. <laughs> any, any, any specific thoughts, anything else you want to add to this or Paul? Not to
5: this conversation. Maybe Paul does. I, I have my own topic that you, I want to get to. You got it. Okay, Paul.
6: Well, you know, I, I, I said from the very beginning, with the uh, just size of the ICD-10 code set, that if there wasn't an actuarial reason for this code set to be this large in the American Clinical Modification, it wouldn't be this large. And uh, I, I see some comments in the uh, chatter about uh, gems, you know, equivalency mappings, and uh, you know, lack of specificity. Medicare is to blame for the first year uh saying that uh, close enough is good enough and we'll just pay you that that didn't serve people very well but nobody should be using generally general equivalency mapping at this point i mean we're into icd-10 i actually am a, an, an advocate of icd-11 because it erases some of these issues but i don't believe i'll see that in my occupational lifetime uh given what happened with icd-10 uh but uh you know <laughs> uh, it, we've tried to blast as many warning whistles as we possibly could about risk adjustment. Uh, you know, I've been to seminars and hosted seminars on this for going back at least a decade. Uh, so it should not uh, be a surprise to anyone that commercial carriers acting as Medicare advantage plans are doing this right now.
1: I agree. All right. So we got in our first segment and I think we are, Ready to move? I think Terry. Why don't we put you up here because I know it's hard for you to stay silent for. 16 I even put minutes. myself
5: on mute. What are you talking about? <laughs> I
1: saw your lips moving. Okay. I was just um, you know. <laughs> So let, let's talk about. So on Thursday this week, uh, is the quote-unquote official end to the public health emergency, and yep. that means that the waivers the flexibilities i should say the flexibilities extended under the 1135 waivers they're done they're go- they're gone I with know. the exception yeah. of telehealth services to a certain degree which will be carried forward but for how long what what is the breakdown of the changes and what do the viewers and listeners need to be aware of
5: well, we hope that you would take one of our many webinars, because I know between Christine, myself, Namus, all of us, we have educational pieces on this. And if you want the reference, it's in those PowerPoints. But just a, as far as a, a couple of things that I wanted to mention, especially the the conversations that I'm getting and emails that I'm getting recently, just as recently as this weekend. Uh, so here's a conversation. I had somebody that emailed me and said, so, Terry... Um, we have been billing the 99441 to 443 codes, telephone, audio only codes for when the patient has come in maybe a week or two ago, our doctor ordered an MRI. And so we call them to give them results. I'm like, okay, face plant number one. Secondly, then she says, then we call them two weeks later and just to see how they're doing a check-in. We co- we also code for that. We also bill for that. She said, also, when patients leave us a message, I'm sorry, I'm trying not to laugh, a message on our pharmacy line, we also code for that when we fill their prescription. Okay, see, I can't, like you said, Sean, I can't hold back. People, stop doing that. <laughs> Those are not medically indicated visits. First of all, okay, the, yes, they opened up the phone call codes for a, a patient initiated visit that a patient that couldn't. Engage in an audio and video. A patient that couldn't come to the office because of a compromised immune system because of COVID. And now I'm seeing these liberties taken with these audio-only visits. Which, no surprise, the uh, CPT panel decided to delete them. The end of 2024, uh, and create 17 new um, telehealth codes. But irrespective of that, the public health emergency does technically end on Thursday. We have been extended for telehealth as far as being able to um, charge for it and send it in. Apparently that is isn't tied to diagnosis, but you have to be careful because it's also not for convenience. It's not to uh, make sure that it's, um, you know, it, it it's overutilized. And that's what I'm seeing all the time. My response back to that person that by, by the way, said that about the, the phone call and, and giving a test result. I said, remember when you order a test, the result is part of that data point in that ordering of that test. So you can't then call the patient or even in the subsequent visit, have them come in. So her response to me was, Oh, right. I see that there's a seven day time frame on the audio call. So do I have to wait to eight day to give them the result? Yeah. I stopped talking. I, I know. See, Paul can't even breathe right now. So it's, it's interesting to me, what people hear versus what the rules are. Um, you have to be very mindful of the phone calls because I am seeing so many payers now ask for money back. They're saying, you did not act in good faith. This was not an appropriate phone call and give me our money back. And um, it's a problem. So please, please be careful with that. Telehealth is low hanging fruit, as Sean likes to call it, as far as an an audit, as far as taking money back, as, as far as finding, and I don't like to use the F word of fraud, but I am seeing more and more beyond non-compliance, but fraudulent submissions of services that should never have been submitted under telehealth. So yes, we do have a 2024 extension, payment parity and all that, but you have to make sure that it is medically necessary, that it reflects a visit that you would have done pre-pandemic. I always say that to practices. Would you have done that before the, before the PHE was installed? And they go, well, no, because they never paid for it. Oh boy. Well, it it doesn't mean that now they're paying for it because of that. See, Scott's even funny. So it's just, it's crazy to me just what I'm seeing right now. And I'll throw it back. I I mean, I know everybody would love to get in on this conversation.
2: Well, I just wanted to jump in real quick. You, Terry, Terry and I, we both love telehealth. We found the value of telehealth. um, But again, I think that a lot of people jumped into telehealth, knee jerk reaction, and never looked back. And there's a lot to look back on. There's a lot of things that we've got to make sure we're doing correctly to support telehealth. Um, I would hate for telehealth to go away. I would hate for CMS to get tired of all these mistakes. Not that I think that's going to happen. I'll put that out there. But I think Terry and I are both um, very big advocates for this, but we're advocates for doing it the right way. Yes,
5: yes. And we still have people, and I know Steffi and I were having a conversation about this. We still have people that are saying, Oh, we were supposed to bill an, a, a phone call code for audio only? We've been billing office visits. Oh, my gosh. I've been auditing that like crazy. I know Stephanie has. I think Paul had to. And it's just people. It, Sean, what's that word or that phrase you come up with? I couldn't remember it. Where ignorance is not bliss of the rules. You have to know what's going on. What What is that called? Okay, you
1: have to It's called. It's called, <laughs> it's called the stupidity defense.
5: Oh shoot. I wasn't and, going to say that out loud.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, it is. Look, you you can't go into um you can't go into an arbitration or to a mediation or to an administrative proceeding or into a litigation, right? And say, "I'm stupid. I didn't know the rules." Because it says clearly under the federal uh, under the Code of Federal Regulations, you should have known You have an obligation to know. If you are going to bill for services to the Centers for Medicare or Medicaid Services or to any other insurance company, you have an obligation to know. Look, and and to Terry's point, you know, listen, you know, the pandemic has been what? Three years, okay? We are three full years. into this thing actually you know 3 years in like 3 months or something like that but you know um listen paul and i today paul was cc'd on an email that came to me from uh an attorney that we uh have been supporting in a uh dispute with one of the big commercial insurance companies and it has to do with um um public health emergency funds that were paid for COVID-19 testing and the insurance company came back and they wanted $2.2 $2. $2 million, Paul, is that? No, 2.4 million. And, you know, we wrote our reports, we did our part, you know, we gave the attorney, you know, the the guidance that we believed was the right way to go back and, you know, how to negotiate this thing. And immediately now, the insurance company has gone from 2.4 million down to 1.2 million so the needle's moving in the right direction but you know my point of bringing this up is because you know we're talking about telehealth services we're talking about services once again rendered during the public health emergency these are high target high value services for all payers especially for the federal payer programs and again <clears throat> remember when you get rung up for violation of the false claims act during a public health emergency the cost from a civil monetary penalties law standpoint is significantly higher the interest rates are significantly higher so you know if you're not doing internal audits of your telehealth services and other services like COVID 19 testing that was rendered during the last three years, you better get on the ball because I don't care if you live in the middle of podunk USA, or you live in a major metropolitan area, they don't care. They look at utilization by taxonomy, by NPI, and by geographic location. And that's, that's what's going to get you targeted. Kristen, go ahead. What you got?
2: Oh, I have to pop off. Oh,
1: thanks for being with us, Christine. Have a good day.
3: Sorry about that. Okay.
1: So, uh, Stephanie, I know
3: you. Yeah, I was going to say, I have something on that to say. Yeah, go ahead, please. So, I think this really shows why practices need to understand that external audits are a must. You know, you can have an excellent internal coding department. You can have internal auditing but one of the things that gets skewed when you're working internally especially in larger organizations and hospitals is that you have that input from the back and forth internal politics you know you know that you're going to make this person personality is stronger than this one so they're kind of leading the pack or you know, how many times do we go into an organization and find out that they're making decisions on an article that was written with no actual resources cited from CMS or other payers? So. Just in general, I've been thinking about this a lot because even just last week to Terry's point, I had an audit review that I was doing with one of my clients and it was surrounding telehealth. Again, we're three years in. And I said, you know, we couldn't support any of the telehealth encounters because we don't even know if video was used. So when we're looking at that, we see the term telehealth, which we don't have a definition of that, meaning absolutely definitively video was used and come to find out the platform they pushed all of their providers to utilize during the pandemic only allows video and doesn't allow audio well nobody on the outside would know that and now you're going to have to go through a defense you know process if this is found on an external audit it's not something that an auditor is just going to let fly by so you know, in general with whatever it is that we are talking about with these different high target areas, you're not gonna know that information. Um, you, know, you can know the policy, you can make sure that the platform, for example, was appropriate, but it doesn't mean that you're gonna know what that's gonna look like to the outside. And you know, when we do these external audits, it's our job to come in with the mindset of an outside auditor. And you know, that's another thing I do talk about with my clients who don't necessarily like the outcome or like what I have to say to them, but you know it's my job to come in, scrutinize your notes in the same way a CMS auditor would, and we're gonna go from there on ways to improve. Even if there's a defense standpoint, that's not the point here. We have to make sure that everything's set in place. Um, the last thing I just wanna say quickly as well is that I'm noticing with my clients that throughout the course of the pandemic, they allowed those waivers to change their workflow. And then when their practices went back to pre-pandemic normal times, they kept the change workflow. So now when we look at things like these flexibilities going away, changes in telehealth, we have issues because it's changed their staffing, it's changed their scheduling, And it's it's just it's not an easy on off switch. So, um, you know, just keep that in mind, especially if you're working with teaching hospitals and residents. There's been a lot of issues there with some of my clients when I'm having these um, talks ahead of time getting ready. And it's just, it's going to take months for them to transition because they've changed the entire inner workings of the practice.
5: So can I say something real quick? Yes, go ahead. CMS put out a call on uh, updates for telehealth and all this thing. They had it, they had a, they also just switched it over to their podcast too. And I want to quote from one of the CMS um, advisors, Jean uh, Moody Wilkes. And she said, and it's funny that um, Stephanie just said this. She said, and all these waivers that we're having that are going to end with the pandemic and some things will have a a certain extension. She said, remember, and I'll quote, she says, discontinue use of certain waivers when they're no longer needed. And we will be looking at that when we audit. And I went, whoa. So basically, even if the audit was extended, she was saying, if you don't need it, just like Stephanie was saying with, you know, if you're back to pre-pandemic levels of patients coming in the office, now if you're using it just because you can and because it's convenient and it's not to stop or slow the spread of COVID because they said COVID's over for all, you know, intent purposes. Um, <laughs> I think y- you could see some, some problems there. So I know Paul hasn't had a chance. So Paul, what you got?
6: I don't know. Not too much on this subject. I mean, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> there's, you know, uh, I think I'd
4: like I'd prefer to pass.
5: All right. So let's go. <laughs> let, let's just <laughs> So would all of us, Paul. But you yeah. know what? <laughs> you know, yeah. I the
4: thing that I would just add to it, and I think everybody's yeah, yeah. covered this pretty well, is like the pace of change in a medical practice can be glacial sometimes. And it was a little bit glacial at the beginning, because at the beginning it was like the almost like the wild, wild west of just like, we just got to make quick adjustments and you can FaceTime people and you can do this and you can do that. Like, and we were doing that with all these different aspects of regulation, right? Like suddenly you like drink in the street and do all these different things, but regulation eventually comes back. And in the early part of COVID, how many times did we read notes where it was like, it was a telehealth visit, but the patient had been palpated in all these different places. We always carry forward exams. And a lot of that kind of went away And now what needs to be tightened up is your telehealth policies. I mean, I see these things in in visits all the time that we talk about where it was intended to be a telehealth visit and I'll see something like, oh, well, we started with the video, but it didn't work. So we switched to the phone 99214. Right. And it's kind of like, you know, or we did a very brief video and then we switched to the phone and, you know, I don't have a basis point to understand like what you actually did on video And, and the biggest thing. I think Terry's point was excellent with the reality of you should quit using these waivers when you don't need them anymore. Uh, and the reality is, you should be making a plan to do that if you don't have one already. And if you're continuing to offer telehealth services now, three years later, you probably shouldn't be on FaceTime with people at this point. You should have the mechanisms in place to do it. You should understand what you're supposed to document. You should understand what happens if the patient is unable to maintain a video connection. And what happens is not you switch to the phone and you bill a 99215. What happens is that patient may need to come into your office. And so a lot of those sympathies, you know, when you're audited externally and, and you're trying to sort of break through this transition, you're just not going to have a lot of sympathy, I don't believe, from a lot of the regulators now three years later.
6: And I'll finally add something. Wow. So you are
1: going to jump in here. Paul. Yeah. Right,
6: and here we go. I'll, you know, uh, I mean. Uh, I'm also sympathetic to the fact that uh, during the COVID health emergency, particularly in the early days uh, before telehealth really got going, I mean, you're talking about physician offices whose margins had collapsed basically where suddenly their patient volume is just not there. And now it's kind of back to normal, you know, uh, as far as we can see with, you know, the emergency ending on, uh, Thursday and maybe maybe there are some practices out there that can think about reinvesting some of their capital into telehealth tools uh but I think it's going to be a while and uh, you know it benefits all of us in the industry to let them know that after a certain point uh, I believe uh, in the private chat we have in August you know non hipaa compliant uh, telehealth is not going to be acceptable anymore. And we're basically back to square one of originating site and, you know, a uh, physician office and that type of thing. So, uh, you know, get up to speed on what is changing and don't just assume that it's going to be the same just because the emergency ended.
1: And the last thing that I'll say on this is something that Terry just put up for our internal group. There's a uh, COVID fee for service FAQ sheet that was issued. Uh, number 30. Thank you, Terry. That if an audio and video encounter loses video connection and it is now an audio only, that you have to code just the audio portion. So, folks, and that was from May 20th of 2020. No, that can't be May twenty. Oh, that goes into. What? What do you mean May 20th? May 20th isn't here yet. 2020. Look at the oh, year. 2020.
5: <laughs> yeah. They put that in their FAQ sheet three years ago.
1: Okay. I was like, wait a minute. I didn't see the 2020. I was like, wait, how can that be 2020? We're only 5'8. Okay. I'm going to move on so I could stop my confusion for myself and everybody else. So Stephanie about five minutes ago made a comment um that would have back then, five minutes ago, led us right into our next conversation. But I'm glad that we continued to go through the um telehealth services because they're a huge audit target and they're going to continue to be for the next couple of years at least a huge audit target um stephanie brought up the term split shared service so last week i had um the opportunity to get to be in person with scott and paul um at one of our large hospital clients in the northeast and um besides getting a chance to um Spend some time face-to-face with the guys and enjoy breaking bread a couple of evenings for uh, dinner and having some good laughs. Which, by the way, you should never go to a Western Sizzling. No matter how desperate you are for something to eat, it will leave problems for at least a few days. Um, Well,
3: there there goes
4: that sponsorship.
3: (laughs) (laughs) We strike out every time trying to bring Sean to a restaurant. No, we this haven't was, gotten it right yet. Unless nope,
1: you two did. Nope. Nope. This was not me. I I survived. Uh I survived. <laughs> um Scott and Paul. Uh we'll just say we'll move forward from that conversation. But um there were not Oof. favorable reviews left for Look, the Western I, I
4: ran I ran a 26-mile <laughs> marathon in the last month, and that meal was worse than the race. <laughs> it was harder to deal with. So yeah. Never so, again. I fully endorse that.
1: Well, all right. So I, I, will, uh, I will leave out our Canadian uh, friend, Senor Kaboom, and we will move straight into a discussion about split-shared services. So Stephanie brought up split-shared services. You never know what you're going to get on this program. Uh, Stephanie brought up the term split-shared services, and last week, uh, being with Scott and Paul at one of our clients, a uh, large hospital group, um, split-shared services again, was a significant finding it was a problem that continued to surface but i think there were a couple of different problems right so let me take the very first one and then you know we'll kind of you know play these things out because in addition to the split shared issue that we had there was a ton of cut and paste and cloning going on and one of the things that we started to talk about were creating these smart phrases that could be drop-ins for the providers to be able to use. So the first the first situation that came up with our group is that the um one of the specialty teams um engages with PAs and their PAs uh round with them at every single patient encounter unless the provider is in surgery or they're uh on a trauma call which Happens maybe 10 to 15% of the time. So, anywhere from 80 to 85 uh, to 90% of the time, the PAs are rounding with them. The problem that we have is that the PAs aren't really doing a split shared service. They are functioning in the role of, and I'm going to pause there. Who wants to take this one, Scott or Paul? I want to.
4: They're Can they're I being a, they're being a scribe basically, but yeah. nobody seemed to like it when we suggested that. But that's the role they were playing.
1: Right, yeah. they're being scribes because the physical examination, the history, and the creation of the plan of care are all being created by the provider, who is then having the PA simply dictate
5: the progress note. But, but Sean, you know ahead, what's Tree. happening. You know yeah, what's happening, though, is and this is where we've seen this on on several things. So I have done. I've gone even further with the auditing of split shared services because it's bugging me. I think physicians are taking liberties, and it's just bugging me. And it's it like we I've said to everybody, it's a high high priced scribe. But what's been happening is I'm looking at the note prior to the PA or nurse practitioner giving their information. So here's here's the key. The doctor's information is so basic. It's it's kind of like a, you know, they they went to Dr. Google themselves and just put in, you know, the the basic templated information. And then you get the PA nurse practitioner who actually now add like add things like the chat bot for healthcare, beautiful stuff is, and they now add information. And you can tell the difference of who's actually seeing the patient and who's actually not or who's actually not doing the you know, um, contributory or let's use, um, CMS wording, substantive, you know, work. And it's interesting because they make it look like what the physician wanted to say. That's not a scribe. That's somebody involved in the information, in the, the record, in the care of the patient. And so what are they now? A medical assistant?
0: Yeah. No, you 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 brought up,
1: you brought up a a significant key term substantive. And I think that's what needs to be defined, right? Paul, let me come to you real quick. Define substantive for our, our our viewers and our listeners, because that seemed to be one of the big issues that wasn't being gotten yeah. in some of the conversations that we were having with providers last week. And I mean Yeah, problem. well
6: I mean, well <laughs> that a lot of that problem was probably in the unique way that this particular provider group decided to sign off. On their uh, notes, but I mean, substantive uh, really means that you are uh, you are performing uh, a majority of the duties of that visit. You know, uh, you know, and you know, in a split shared uh, situation, you're you know, basically that documentation should be very clear about who is the substantive provider of that encounter you know, uh, whether it is the documentation of minutes or whether you're stating very clearly what portions of the encounter were your responsibility as far as documentation and the direct care of that patient.
1: Yeah, and, and keep in mind for the remainder of 2023, the providers have the option of the substantive portion being either the performance of one of the three key components, right? Of the history exam or the development of the plan of care or time as the controlling factor. But in 2024 is when it moves to greater than 50% of the encounter being controlled as the substantive portion. So you know, keep that in mind. You 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 had the reprieve for you know for 2023, but come 2024, it becomes greater than 50 percent of the face-to-face encounter is controlled for the substantive portion by that individual, whether it's the PANP or the physician. Scott, go ahead. Actually, well, not- and,
4: and and I think this this is where we start to get into trouble. And I maybe Terry and I were going to say the same thing. So I have Probably. the Novitas description up here. And it, when we talk about the way that they're defining substantive or substantive with respect to time, it's basically more time than the other person. It's not more time than half of the total encounter, right? So, you know, if we're talking about 39 minutes, whoever spends 20 or more, that's more. But if they spend time together, it can be allocated to the physician. So I think where I was.
1: Yeah, that's the confusing uh, part right there. So,
4: so I'm going to back up a second, right? So the thing that unnerves me about split shared visits and the way these policies are changing is I think substantive sat out there as like this, uh, one of these undefined terms, you know, sometimes I say, when I talk about healthcare compliance, we have all these undefined terms, right? Like is, is a two hamburger dinner substantive, it depends upon who you ask, right? And so now we have these definitions of substantive, And it's defined in such a way that I think we can probably all agree, at least on this panel, that CMS's underlying concern with the split shared visit practices prior to these changes is that the physicians were kind of blowing in and out of all these rooms saying like, I saw an exam of the patient and I agreed on and on and on, and they are taking the full payment, right? So what concerned me going back to this specific client and some of the verbiage is now we're talking about one provider has to spend more time than the other provider. Keeping in mind now that when we think about activities on the date of the service, we have the face-to-face encounter, we have other activities that are occurring outside of the presence of the patient that may be counted towards the patient's overall encounter. And so one of my concerns is if the provider, if the physician and the NP see the patient together for the entire time, I mean, I have a million other concerns about that with respect to scribing and productivity and all the rest of it. How do we account for any time that the nurse practitioner might spend on the patient outside of the presence of the patient when the provider's not there? And I've seen instances and I've had questions where the provider has basically said to me, I am going to attest that I spent more time than the nurse practitioner, and therefore you don't need the nurse practitioner's time because I'm attesting on behalf of both of us. But in that instance, they're not saying that they spent the time together. And so my question was, well, if you're not with the nurse practitioner and the nurse practitioner is performing a component of the visit or performing activities on behalf of the patient, how can you attest to their time? And so I think that this, you know, we have for the remainder of 2023, this notion of performing the history, the exam, the medical decision-making you know, quote in its entirety. And I know there's a comment in the 2022 fee schedule that basically says you can take the MDs history exam or medical decision-making, count it towards a code and just discard whatever the nurse practitioner wrote for that area and you're just gonna kind of end where you end up. But my concern heading into 2024, wow, is that if we don't have this time issue locked down it's gonna be very problematic because I think we're in this world, and I don't mean this to sound as negative as it's gonna come out, we're in this world where the groups are basically saying, how do we continue to perform split shared visits in as close to a manner as we historically have? Whereas CMS is clearly saying like, one of you has to spend more time than the other one, and that's the one who bills the service. And my concern is if the physician wants the credit for the visits, as they sometimes do, if you're not on top of this as a group, we're going to end up with more of these situations where the physician is just bringing the NP or the PA in for the whole encounter. And you've kind of defeated the purpose of any mechanism of billing productivity in that example.
1: Well, and especially where, and Terry, I'll come right to you, especially where the PAs or the NPE, uh, uh, the PAs or the NPs are salaried. They don't care about the RVUs, but the right. positions are compensated based on their RVUs. And if they're not the one dominating the encounter, the substantive portion, they're not getting the RVU. So they're right. going to see a and, diminished uh, a bonus check or their or, or compensation going down.
4: Right. And the PA will just say, I'll go where you want me to be. So, you right. know, if the physician wants me to follow him or him or her around all day, that's what I'll do. Because they're and, salaried. Right. And, 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 you know, so I think it's it's I remember when these rules first were proposed, it, it's pretty obvious, like they don't want the same practice pattern that they find themselves having for split shared services. And so I think we as medical practices or you as medical practices should not be trying to filter these new rules through how do we get as close to the way we historically did it, because I think that's going to be a little bit difficult.
1: Terry, go ahead. You had so, something you wanted to yeah, say. Yeah,
5: it's it, it, it's a mess. So exactly what Scott was saying. But the internet-only manual update, it's Transmittal 11842, and it's Change Request 13064. And it's all about um, shared, shared and split visits. And it's dated February 9th of this year. And some of the things that I read in this, I just thought, did somebody not talk to AMA when they were doing this? Because it doesn't make sense. So a couple of the things that actually don't make sense – First of all, they talk about time, and when they're talking about time, they're saying that medical review when practitioners use time to select a visit, and this is right in the middle of the the split shared visits in the hospital codes, it says our reviewers will use the medical record documentation to objectively determine, they mean subjectively, determine the medical necessity of the visit and accuracy of the documentation of the time spent, whether documented via start stop time or total time if that time is relied upon to support the e visit. Why would they put that in there if they weren't targeting these codes? The second thing that I find just incredibly just, it doesn't make sense. It says that for the substantive portion, it says in addition to meeting the documentation requirements for the medically appropriate history and exam. Okay, what are the documentation requirements? Raise your hand. I mean, we don't have any right now. It says that whatever the physician feels is appropriate. So if, the, if you have a, a practice that's going by something that says, well, the doctor um, filled the, um, the history or exam in its entirety. And so, and basically they had two lines on that, you know, that exam or that history. Didn't take a past family social history, didn't do a review of systems. Who says they had to? We don't have a standard anymore of that. We used to. And the 97, 95 guidelines, but we don't have that anymore. Uh, we only have it in medical decision-making. So that's the first thing. And so, and then the other thing, and this one, I don't even like to say out loud, but it talks about how the time, and it talks about the the hospital same day, um, when it talks about the uh, the practitioner spending that time, it said, even if the time isn't face-to-face, we'll still count it. AMA says No. So it's usually in the reverse. You notice that whenever CPT says something, AMA, Medicare says, oh, no, no, no. Prolonged service. No, no, no. You know, anything that they're talking about, they say, you guys are giving too many liberties. But Medicare says, well, you know, we know some things aren't always face to face. I struggle with this daily with some of the audits I'm doing on hospital because I have a terrible note, an absolutely terrible note. But does it meet the meet the criteria for splitter shared visits? Unfortunately, it does technically. And so not only is there mid legal issues all over this, you've got conflicting, um, published guidance between AMA and Medicare, and nobody seems to even talk about patient care. Where's the patient care here? We're talking about time. We're talking about substantive portion of, you know, what we're doing with data points and, and, you know, all this stuff, but we're not talking about, well, the patient's in the hospital. So they're sick enough to be seen by a physician. Why isn't that the conversation? So I'll stop my rant.
4: And I think it's a mess. And I think for all the reasons you're saying, because I have this, you know, when we were at this client, I had to kind of deep dive into this Novitas guidance. And it's very similar to what we're saying, right? It spells out activities that construe qualifying time aligned with the way a service would be billed based on time under the 2021 guidelines, right? So we get into this thing where they're like, if you're billing based on time, you can count activities that don't happen face-to-face with the patient as long as they happen on the calendar day. But now we're in this world where the practice can build a service based on medical decision-making, but still there needs to be, like I'm struggling to figure out, unless the provider, unless the physician and the NP or the PA are together the entire time, I'm struggling to figure out a way to comply with this other than each provider documenting their time and or the time that they were spent together. So that the physician may say, okay, the nurse practitioner and I spent 20 minutes together with the patient. So let's use that example. We round, we see the patient together. The physician and the NP spend that 20 minutes together. All that time can be credited to the physician. My question then becomes, and I agree that this is unlikely, but did the nurse practitioner spend more than 20 minutes without the physician, doing other activities. So the question that came up with this specific client was, I'm reasonably certain that the physician didn't sit with the nurse practitioner while she documented the encounter that day. <laughs> that's time that's listed as qualifying right. time, but it's not accounted for in these various statements. And it's a mess because I'm trying to explain it to the client and I'm saying, well, no, you're not coding the service based on time. You can code it based on MDM, right? You can arrive at a total in theory of 25 minutes And still code like a 99233, but we still have to know how the time was spent. And so, like I say, I mean, I've had, even beyond this client, I've had numerous conversations where it's been some variant of, they don't need to each document their time, et cetera, et cetera. The physician knows he spent more time. And it's like, if the physician isn't with the mid-level, the nurse practitioner, the PA, while they're performing their job duties, how does the physician know that?
5: Exactly, exactly. And I'm getting that as well. I'm getting it where well, and the old school of it before the 2021 and 2023 rules, I should say 2023. Now, um, it was basically the sh- splitter shared visits was the doctor had to show up after the mid level did everything and sign off and it said you had to do more than sign off it didn't say what that more was it said it just right. couldn't be signing off I actually like that real better. You never know what you had until it's gone. And so now we have all this mess. And it also was you had to have face to face before. So the the billing provider had to have face to face.
4: Well and and she oh sorry, go ahead.
5: No, and just now the fact that they're leaving it so open-ended for a hospital patient. The (sighs) acute patients, if you're in the hospital, how okay, this is a this is a convers this is a question for Sean. You you're in the legal um, you know, umbrella. So a doctor sitting there in front of a judge and basically stating their case because let's say that they got audited for their all of their hospital visits and they weren't present <laughs> for the shared visits and so basically the judge says well why weren't you there well because the law says i don't or the the published guidance says i don't have to be there okay again why weren't you there because my nurse practitioner my pa is the one that did the work but the patients in the hospital they have they're in acute level of care they're in a hospital step up level of care third again third time why weren't you there what does the doctor have a defense on this sean it's a weird thing. You know, listen,
1: this is the problem that you run into. You have you have guidance documents. So I tell people all the time you have to pay very close attention to when you're talking about guidance documents from CMS or from a pair, right? Because these these guidance documents, these quasi-regulations, these sub-regulatory guidance documents, right? They don't have the effect of law. So while the guidance document may say to you that the physician doesn't have to physically be present, you have to look at what the actual law in your state is and whether or not the state law requires a different level of supervision than maybe what a subregulatory guidance document is providing for you. Um, I, listen, there's, there's always a way to create a defensible uh, situation if a provider was acting in good faith and they were acting within the parameters of the guidance issued by the federal payer program. To a judge who would ask the question multiple times after being told the reason why he or she is a physician, wasn't physically present during a component of the encounter, whereby another qualified healthcare professional, such as a PA or an NP, was rendering that service under a split shared service, you know, that is something that the attorneys have to be able to provide code of federal regulations, state regulations, things of that nature to be able to compel the judge, you know, if it's a bench case to you know to take those into consideration and or to a jury but you raise a good point i mean you know there's so much confusion i mean there's so many great quotes from judges at the state supreme court level at the supreme court level you know at scotus over the years about the difficulty with dealing with medicare and medicaid and the continuous pruning of rules and regulations Um, you know, we're, we're running short on time. I know we had one last thing that we wanted to talk about. Well, two things. Um, I think I want to save Paul's topic on the Mayo uh, for our next conversation. I do want to put forward two things, though. One, um, this month is the beginning of the requirement for you all as participating providers with Cigna That if you bill for an evaluation and management service and a minor procedure on the same date of service, and you append a modifier 25, you will have to submit your medical records to the dedicated fax line that is in place. I fully anticipate that this is going to be an absolute debacle. I think Cigna is going to get pounded with uh, complaints. I think providers are going to see a significant dip in their reimbursement Um, that goes to, you know, that comes from Cigna. Uh, I just think Cigna, if you guys are listening and you're smart, y'all need to reconsider what you're about to force providers around this country to do because I can see the fax lines being uh, held up. I can, uh, you know, I, I can see uh, providers raising cane about not getting reimbursed. And depending on how bad this, thing's go, this thing goes, I do not for one minute believe that there might not be a potential for a class certification. I know there are attorneys out there that are looking at this thing left and right. And if Cigna is willing to be the, the guinea pig in this thing, we'll see what happens. But I want to leave you guys with one last thing. Um, For the month of May, we, the Compliance Guy program, have uh, taken on the uh, Tafita Rakib Foundation as the official charity of the Compliance Guy for the month of May. Uh, This is a charity. Folks, listen to me, please. This is so important. They were formally launched on the 22nd of March in 2022. In London, the United Kingdom, the foundation believes that every child deserves a chance to live after uh, suffering from any form of a neurological condition. They are taking uh, 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 tried and true treatment plans that have been in place here in the United States and in other countries, and they are trying to bring it to the United Kingdom to help these children, more than 300 children every year. Um, attend uh, AE in the United K with a head injury. This is a program that means a lot to me. It means a lot to a very good friend of mine, Keith Mason, who you all probably see on LinkedIn. Um, and, you know, he's created a new sports line of clothing where 100% of every single sale goes to this charity to benefit pediatric children. So, uh, thank you for Tafid, Rakib, for allowing me the opportunity to make them the official charity of the Compliance Guide podcast for the month of May. Uh, moving into the next month, we will be announcing a different charity each month that's participating with the Compliance Guide podcast, because I believe the only way to make a difference is to bring awareness to these situations. All right, to Scott Kraft, Paul Spencer, Terry Fletcher, Stephanie Howard, and our dearly departed, Christine Hall, I would love to thank you all for being back once again with all of us here on the Monday Compliance Roundtable. We are back, and we are looking forward to engaging with all of you who continuously tune in, log on, and hang out with us each and every single Monday. Terry and I will be back with a Terry Tuesday tomorrow, so until then... Remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care.
0: You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review, and we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.